Hey folks, Preet here. Another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. Former Vice President Mike Pence made history last week when he testified before a January 6th grand jury. In other news, Chief Justice John Roberts declined an invitation to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the Supreme Court's ethics rules. And writer E. Jean Carroll took the stand to testify in her battery and defamation case against former President Donald Trump. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. Shall we talk about Supreme Court ethics? Let's do that. So we've been talking about this for some weeks. People will recall there are these issues relating to whether or not the Supreme Court should have a binding ethics code, which it doesn't. They have something. We can talk about what that is and how effective it is. But there have been disturbing stories about omissions from financial disclosure documents on the part of Clarence Thomas. Since then, we've had stories about omissions from financial disclosure documents with respect to Justice Gorsuch and the Senate Judiciary Committee, led by Senator Dick Durbin, has sought to have the Chief Justice, John Roberts, come testify about these issues of ethics. And I, th- I find this, these letters back and forth to be very interesting, in part because I used to work in the Senate, and in part because we've been talking about the Supreme Court and we've been talking about the sort of undermining by them themselves of their own reputations and, and integrity. And just to tee it up for you, Joyce, Senator Durbin asked for Justice Roberts, but this is this will be important to the discussion. He says, I invite you or another justice whom you designate to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee on May 2, 2023 at 10 a.m. That's today, and it's in the 10 a.m. hour, and John Roberts is not there because John Roberts wrote a letter back saying, I must respectfully decline your invitation. And among the things that John Roberts says is, quote, testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee by the Chief Justice of the United States is exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence, end quote. And then he gives some examples, like two examples of Chief Justices testifying, both on what he calls routine matters of judicial administration. And Chief Justice Rehnquist once testified about improvements to the federal civil service system. But what's missing from his analysis about the rarity of justices testifying is he's speaking only of the chief justice. As Dick Durbin points out in a a subsequent letter, justices who are not chiefs, but justices generally have testified 92 times at hearings since 1960. And as Dick Durbin made very clear in his letter to Roberts, he said, either you come or you can designate someone else. Is that some weird sleight of hand or do both sides have an argument? Well, certainly both sides have an argument. I think it's really disingenuous of Roberts to pretend that this situation is just like any other situation where a a Supreme Court chief justice could be called upon to testify. This is, you know, in many ways a crisis in the judiciary. It's certainly a crisis of confidence in the Supreme Court. And so for him to just say, you know, I must respectfully decline, and by the way, here's a letter where me and my eight colleagues, we recommit to these non-binding rules that haven't worked very well, by the way, if you've been reading ProPublica lately. You know, it, it really feels like weak sauce. 
coming from the chief justice. I think that you're right to hone in on this bit about the possibility that other justices could have testified, and we can talk about situations in the past where that happened. But, you know, there might be a federal district judge in Manhattan who would find that if a subpoena was issued to the chief justice, that Congress would have a legitimate purpose in obtaining his testimony since they're contemplating future legislation. I was going to, that was my next question to you, and you, you said it very cleverly. How does this compare to the federal district court case in which, you know, Alvin Bragg failed to prevent the testimony of Mark Pomerant? So you have in that matter, a congressional committee trying to get testimony from a local prosecutor's office or a former local prosecutor in that office versus trying to get testimony from someone within your own federal system, even though they're in a different branch of government. Which is more odd, which is more egregious, which is more overreaching? You know, this one is only odd because we have historically and traditionally had such deference for Supreme Court justices. But when you think about it, this isn't an effort to interfere in a case that's currently in front of the Supreme Court. All that Senator Durbin and Senator Whitehouse and others want to have a conversation with the chief justice about is, what can we do to restore the integrity of of your branch of government? And what sorts of rules and procedures could we adopt to do that? That feels like a very core congressional concern. There are legitimate, by the way, separation of powers questions here. But that doesn't mean no inquiry can be had. And, you know, Preet, just to draw another parallel, and maybe I'm going too far here, so you can rein me back in if I am. But we've talked a lot about how people who've written books can't then suddenly throw up their hands and feign horror at the thought of being asked to testify in Congress, right? You can't sort of claim executive privilege after you've spilled your guts in a book where you've made a lot of money. We don't have that situation here, but I just did a quick Google search last night to see if Justice Roberts had spoken publicly, and it confirmed my suspicion that he had just a a really quick search, showed that in 2022, he spoke in Colorado Springs. In 2019, he gave a speech at Belmont University. In 2006, he did a lengthy interview with um, ABC's Jan Greenberg. He's spoken at graduations. I mean, it's not like he has never talked about the court. Yeah, but the fact that someone speaks somewhere, is that that's a reason why they must testify before Congress? I mean, Mark Pomerantz speaks in places too. I think more to the point, he's spoken about the court and the importance of the court's integrity and the importance of the court as an institution. And being willing to have those conversations in public, I'm not sure, I mean, in, in some ways, and, and look, I don't mean to make light of it. I understand his desire to not go over there and speak to the committee and to be asked questions about Clarence Thomas's conduct, right? He clearly doesn't want to be in that position. At the same time, there would also have been an opportunity for him to talk about what the court is doing and to begin the process of restoring some public confidence. And I wonder if there's not just a little bit of a bubble going on at the court where he and the other justices may not really yet appreciate how deep the discomfort is. Last night, I got an email from a friend. In 2011, my husband and I went on a, a interfaith trip in Israel, and we've stayed in touch with some of the people that we went with. And one of the women who I have never in those 10-plus years had a political conversation with emailed me last night saying, you know, I did not grow up thinking 
anything other than the fact that, that the Supreme Court had more integrity than anything else in our government. And she said, and, and I am so devastated to learn that they don't. I mean, it was a very heartfelt sort of a communication and shocking from somebody who's from a family of lawyers. I'm not sure that they get that that's the mood in the country. Now, on this question of the propriety of having one or more Supreme Court justices, whether it's a chief justice or an associate justice, come and testify about ethics issues before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Dick Durbin wrote a letter back to Roberts, as I said, and I haven't fact-checked this myself, but I presume it's correct. He has an excellent staff. Quote, notably, on October 5th, 2011, so that's 12 years ago, Justices Antonin Scalia and Stephen Breyer testified before the Judiciary Committee and engaged in a discussion with committee members about the court's ethical standards. In its reporting on that hearing, the New York Times noted that, quote, the ethical conduct of the Supreme Court has been under growing scrutiny, end quote, and that, quote, questions have been raised over, wait for it, Justice Clarence Thomas's appearances before Republican-backed groups and his acceptance of favors from a contributor in Texas, Harlan Crow, end quote. So these questions have been swirling for a while. They relate to the particular Supreme Court justice that's been under discussion in the last number of weeks. And two Supreme Court justices who are not shrinking violets and also know how to say no and F off, came and testified (laughs) before the Judiciary Committee. That, to me, is the better precedent. My question to you is, should the Senate Judiciary Committee reissue a request to all nine justices? You know, that seems to me to be a very sensible approach. I had not thought about that. I had thought about reissuing the request to the Chief Justice and asking that he follow that pattern and, and send two justices over. But I think maybe that is an interesting approach. What what really fascinates me about the reporting in 2011 is that no one on the court can't say that they were not on notice about what was going on with Clarence Thomas because it was in the paper of record in 2011. And instead of cleaning up their act, you know, Clarence Thomas doubled down on his misbehavior. And if you need anything that points out that the current system is not working, this voluntary adherence to non-binding rules, well, it's that gap between 2011, when this first came to light publicly, and 2023, when we learn it accelerated and got worse. So, as I said at the beginning, it's not the case that the justices have done nothing and that there's no you know, policy or principle that they're supposedly following. What they're doing, people think, is weak sauce. And what is that, Joyce? Well, it's this notion that all of the justices jointly are saying these non-binding rules are enough. And the progressive wing of the court has, in essence, vouched that they have confidence that this can be enough since all nine of them signed the, the letter together. There has been a lot of criticism of the progressive justices. I think it's worth sort of just putting down a, a pin here to say this is not a political issue. This is not progressives against you know conservatives on the court. This is a question of right-sizing their reporting, right-sizing who they accept favors from, and making sure that, um, you know, a little bit of sunlight shines on the court's activities, because if that does not happen, the public cannot regain confidence in the court. And that confidence is so critical. You know, what's interesting, in the Supreme Court statement that everyone signed, the statement makes clear that, you know, trying to assuage people's concerns about whether this remains static or it evolves over time. And the statement says, 
The committee provides guidance on the sometimes complex reporting requirements. Just last month, for example, it provided clarification on the scope of the personal hospitality exemption to the disclosure rules. And that's something we've talked about, right? Whether personal hospitality includes private air travel. Does that satisfy you? That's correct. And the timing on that I thought was sort of interesting. It, it came just, I assume, as the court was learning that there was going to be this reporting on Clarence Thomas. It seemed awfully convenient. Do you think John Roberts said to his colleague when this came to light, you no longer have clearance, Clarence? <laughs> you know, that's my first airplane reference, I think, in this podcast. That was very nice. No clearance, Clarence. My favorite movie. <laughs> let's get let's get back on track here. There are bills pending. I don't know if they're going to amount to anything. As you said, it's a nonpartisan or bipartisan issue. I think that if a progressive Supreme Court justice had these entanglements and omissions from disclosure forms, the other side would be up in arms. And I think just everyone should be held to the same standard, and it should be a transparent one. That's absolutely true, and in some ways. This issue of improving the court's ethics rules has languished because disclosures have only come to light on the conservative side of the court and and everybody, you know, has circled the wagons. And you got to wonder, this letter signed by all nine, would Justice Alito or Justice Thomas have signed up if these sorts of information came to light about Elena Kagan? I think that's an interesting question to ponder. Something that I find to be, by the way, really disturbing in this letter that that the Chief Justice, I guess, drafts and that all nine agree to sign is this notion where he says up front that they are seeking to dispel some commonplace misperceptions as though the, the evidence that we can now all see with our own eyes is misperception, not impropriety. And so I'm I'm still deeply troubled by the tone that we're seeing come out of the court as though they don't take the issue seriously. There are some really good solutions that members of Congress are suggesting that they've, you know, put forward. Could the code become binding? And some legal academics have weighed in and said, look, it might not be possible to make this fully enforceable against the nine, against the Supreme Court. But if you have a code that's been adopted and that says it's binding, that really advances us from where we are now. And I suppose theoretically in a world where right now, you know, the options are zero to 90. It's either do nothing or impeach, right? And and neither one of those is very tenable in the current moment. Wouldn't it be great if justices were submitting forms like everybody else in the government where they were signing off under penalty of perjury? And one of the issues that's been flagged with Justice Gorsuch is when he hit the box for, you know, who's buying your property, he just left it blank. And as you and I know from our work at DOJ, where we had really lovely people who helped with our forms, if we had left a box blank, somebody would have politely called us and asked us to fill it in before we signed off on the final version of the forms. That sounds to me like a pretty good model for the Supreme Court and something that would go a long way. Yeah, I agree with all that. Should we talk about a trial that is ongoing that we alluded to earlier? It's the trial, civil trial. People sometimes get this confused by E. Jean Carroll, who's the plaintiff uh, against Donald Trump, in which she has both a defamation claim and also an actual claim for battery relating to the fact, as she alleges, that Donald Trump raped her one afternoon in a Bergdorf Goodman 
dressing room in Manhattan. She's not clear about the exact date, but the best evidence of trial suggests that it's around 1996. And obviously the defense is making Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Thank you.